0: Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate, the show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. Hey everyone, before we get started, I wanted to take a quick second to thank the guys at Cascm for making this podcast happen. They've brought Limitless from an idea to making it a reality, and I can't thank them enough for support along the way. If you're looking to get going on your own content creation journey or need help with your marketing, I'd strongly encourage you to reach out to them at kazcm.com. Today's episode with Carrie Bob brings out an entire plethora of emotions that you would never expect to hear from a commercial real estate podcast. Unfortunately, her story is about as crazy as we've heard on the show so far, and it's not exactly all positive all the time. That said, it involves incredible impact on not just our business, but society in general. But we also talk about the successes of her commercial real estate career and how building a specific niche within your business is something that can be applicable to anybody. And Carrie did a wonderful job of that in brokerage, which you'll certainly get to hear about too. Sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Carrie. Really excited to have Carrie Bob, the founder of Carrie Bob and Co. as well as Hello Jenny, co-founder, right? I guess it's fair to say of Hello Jenny. Correct. Based in lovely California, specifically San Diego. And she's amazing. I'm really excited for those of you who aren't familiar for whatever reason that you've been living under a rock and don't know Carrie to kind of get to know her a little bit. And we're just going to jump into it. So Carrie, tell us where are you from originally? How did you grow up? Like, what were you like as a kid? A lot of people get thrown off when they get asked these questions, but it all ties back in. It seems like eventually on the show. So start from the beginning. Tell us all about you.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I've been a fan of yours for a long time and I'm so pumped to be here. So thank you for having me here. So I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm here now at my parents' house and grew up here and ended up going to college. I went to Grand Canyon University. I played volleyball growing up and I went to Grand Canyon University and then I transferred to a small school in Oklahoma, actually Southern Nazarene University.
0: So I'm going to cut you off. So I'm going to be rude and cut you off because you're talking about your college, job. But we really want to dig deep here. We want to know how you grew up. <laughs> so are you an only child? What did your parents do? Like, We want to know it all. Obviously, you played volleyball.
1: I am the oldest of two. I have a younger sister, about four and a half, five years younger than me. And yeah, we always just grew up playing sports. I think that had a... Huge part in shaping my life, not just business, but I mean, you're an athlete, you know how that goes. Like, I loved your post about your high school coach because, like, that just shapes so much of who we become.
0: Yeah. So, for those who don't know, Carrie's referring to a post where I actually, in my spare time, coached high school basketball for five seasons at the place where I played. And I did a nice homage to, because it's the least I can do to my old seventh grade history teacher turned varsity basketball coach toward like my quote-unquote boss because I was an assistant coach and now friend. And Carrie's being very kind and talking about that. But she clearly had a coach in her life who played a very big impact on her success and well-being. And so I do want to hear about that. We can go ahead and jump into that now if you want. But I know that your volleyball coach had a big impact on your life.
1: Yeah, she did. Deanna England I tagged her in the comments of your post because I thought it was just such a great tribute. And my mom blames Deanna for the three speeding tickets I got in high school because she's like, Deanna taught me like how to be aggressive and just like go for it. <laughs> <And> so...
0: <laughs> so you were driving late to volleyball practice too, I bet. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So we digress a little bit. You and I tend to do that when we talk. No biggie. So you're the oldest of two. You have a younger sister that you're four and a half years older than. Mm-hmm. You don't seem like the type that would beat up your little sister. Did you beat up your little sister?
1: We definitely fought when we were younger. We're super close now, but like really close, but it wasn't super compatible. Like we definitely had tension growing up, that's for sure. Really? I wish it wasn't like that, but it was, yeah.
0: Got it. Okay. So tell me about your parents. What was the dynamic like with them and your relationship?
1: Oh, they're awesome. So my dad's retired orthopedic hand surgeon. And so he would do like really crazy microsurgery on hands. And he was a hand specialist my mom ran his office. She was like the back of house for his practice.
0: Oh, he was private. Yes. Got it. So you have entrepreneurial dreams.
1: Yes, and I'm well aware and like following some of the things you're doing with urgent care because they've been talking about that for I remember being in high school and then kind of like talking about the progression that urgent cares are going to take and things like that.
0: So your dad never did. He just had partnerships with the hospitals around. I guess they, they had a referral program, but he was always in private practice. Right. That's amazing.
1: And that's how real estate kind of came into the picture. Was about the time I was in junior high or high school. My dad started investing in retail strip centers. Oh really? Some, some medical office.
0: How did he get hooked up into that? Was he? just like out and about and somebody knew that he was a doctor and so they make a good LP or how did that happen? Any idea?
1: I believe it was a friend of mine from high school who I grew up with, maybe even before high school. His dad was a broker at CBRE. And they just started talking and got into a Whataburger ground lease deal. That was his first real estate deal. And I think it was like a $45,000 a year.
0: Do they still own it? I'll buy it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They don't still own it. They
0: don't. So he bought this as like a passive income, like coupon clipping play, or he was just an LP in the development deal?
1: I don't think that they developed it. I think that he, I was really young, so I don't remember the details of that deal. I think he just bought the ground lease. And then I think Waterburger was already there
0: as a tenant. Got it. So it was income producing.
1: Yeah. And my guess is he didn't totally. Understand like the way everything could go. He was just kind of like, all right, let's see, let's see what this does. And they had success with that. And then they ended up doing a small retail strip center. And it kind of, you know how it goes, it just kind of grew from there. And then he bought his own medical office building and leased it out to other physicians and things like that.
0: Love it. So I guess him coming home and talking about that at the dinner table got you more inspired than talking about like finger tendons being put back together? Is that...
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I remember crazy stories as a kid of like, he would see all sorts of awful things right, that happened to people's hands. So that for sure. And he kept telling me to get into commercial real estate. And I can get into that a little bit later. But he was like, medical office is where you've got to be. And so that's where I thought my career was going to go eventually.
0: Got it. And how old were you when you... Got tipped off to commercial real estate when your dad's saying, Hey, you should be chasing, you know, MOB product or brokerage. Like, how old were you when you were having these conversations roughly?
1: I was right out of college. Like, I had kind of watched it, but I wasn't really paying close attention. I didn't care so much, you know, you're nice. I wasn't like fascinated right. by it or anything. It was just kind of there. Got it. And then when I graduated college, I went and worked for a nonprofit and I worked there for three years doing fundraising and I ended up raising a lot of money for them. And my dad was like, you're
0: doing sales. You should be monetizing that skill set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tough conundrum, right? Because you want to do better for society. And I know how kind-hearted you are. And we will definitely get into what you have going on outside of commercial real estate toward the end of the show. So stick around, folks, as I sound like a used car salesman. But you obviously have... I mean, anybody who's ever met... I've never even met you in person, which is crazy. But anybody who's met or talked to Carrie via Zoom or a call or whatever, obviously knows that she's very likable, high energy, whatever. Do you, where do you get that personality straight from? Mom, dad, someone else?
1: You know, it's interesting. I feel like I'm a really good combination of both. When people meet me, I look like my mom and I talk like her We like, have a lot of the same mannerisms. And then there's some things where like, my dad is super high achieving. And there are times when I feel like... And I'm sure you feel like this way too sometimes. Where I, my brain gets duck on something and I cannot let it go until it's...
0: That's the physician coming out, for sure. Yeah.
1: So like a little bit of both, I would say. Sure.
0: You played volleyball in college, right? So you're a pretty good volleyball player. Okay. You're a very good volleyball player. That was
1: a little while ago, but yeah.
0: (laughs) Not that long ago. So you grew up playing volleyball and you knew you wanted to play in college. That dictated your college choice. Is that...
1: Yeah, so this is interesting. I went to a really small Christian high school. There were only 36 kids in my graduating class. Wow. And when it came time to graduate, Arizona State offered me an opportunity to walk on to the volleyball team, but I was really intimidated to go to such a huge university that I went to a smaller school. And then, kind of later in life, when I was trying to figure out my commercial real estate career, that always haunted me. And in Simon Sinek's book, Find your why. And he makes you go through the timeline of your life and find those hash marks of your life that left their impression on you. And it's good and bad, but they determine the decisions you make. I realized that that one decision to not go to Arizona State represented such huge regret for me that I didn't go for it because I was too scared. <laughs> we'll get there, but that's really shaped how I've made decisions throughout my career is I never wanted to feel that regret of playing at that level. And so I care more about not wishing I had done it differently than going for it and making a mistake.
0: Sure. Which makes all the sense in the world as we get to hear more of your story. Were you a good student growing up? You seem like you were.
1: I was okay. I was like a B student.
0: Got it. Best thing never happened to real estate. (laughs) (laughs) The best that ever happened to the B student is commercial real estate. So you go off to college, you go to a small Christian school in Arizona, Mm -hmm. and you're playing volleyball there. And then you mentioned earlier that you actually ended up deciding to transfer to a school in Oklahoma.
1: Yeah. Southern Nazarene University.
0: I know you said before that not going to Arizona State because you were scared. I mean, did you have any affiliations in Oklahoma? Like, to an outsider, it sounds random. So I'd love to hear what the. It
1: was very random. And I feel like I completely messed it all up. <laughs> so I knew the coach. It was like a, another safe thing. The school is like 2,000 students. And so it felt bigger. because you know, I went from 32 to 2,000, but it still was like I really wanted to play at a high level, but I was just too scared. And then I don't think I've made that a decision like that where I pulled back so far again, because it helped shape my why, right?
0: Yeah. you know It's interesting. I'm really, really lucky because the people that have been on this show are... You can Google them. They're, by and large, and you certainly are just another one in the list are ridiculously impressive. And we've had a lot of athletes on here. And I don't like to call myself an athlete because I'm not athletic, but I played sports. and there's certain lessons that you get playing sports that you just can't replicate, right? You're going to lose. Someone will always be better than you. You will inevitably go through some sort of adversity. And the beauty of sports is you get to experience that adversity in something that's not life or death. It's sports are important, we're all passionate about them if we're committed to them, but in general It's not life or death, right? You lose a game, it hurts, you go home, you cry, and then you learn to work harder. Whereas if you lose your job, if you've never experienced adversity before, you may not handle it as well as somebody who's a former athlete like yourself. So it makes me think of Chris Ressa, who wrestled at Rutgers, and Chris Sands, who was on the show, who played professional tennis, and Steven Battelle, who played baseball in college. And I'm thinking of several other guests who've been on who've played either professionally or in college or even at highly competitive high school. And so... Yeah, what I was saying is I really... Appreciate your perspective of where you were coming from with knowing in advance that sports and that experience of making a decision or taking a chance and failing, or in your case, not taking that chance and it really bothering you, helping shaping you who you are. That's why I like to get into people's backgrounds so much on the show because it ultimately leads back to that. And that doesn't surprise me one bit that you have the perspective to be able to say like, yeah, it helped shape who I am. Anyway, so back to your yeah. story. People are exhausted of hearing me talk already. So you entered <laughs> the school in Oklahoma. You have a relationship with the coach. I assume you finished there. Yeah. Okay. What did you major in? What's your degree in? Journalism. Okay. And so you thought you were going to be covering either sports or weather or news or something? or?
1: Yeah, I just liked the creative element. I loved photography, which is really cool how Hello Jenny's come into play with all of this. because.
0: Yes. Spoiler word. that That's going to come back. Yeah. Before, I mean,
1: people always say they like, pull all of your life together and like create the life you want. But I never like figured out how to do that. And so I think it kind of all comes together. But yeah, I just like the creative side of it. I interned at K.O.C.O. in Oklahoma City, the ABC affiliate. I'd get in at like 3 a.m. in the morning and just be behind the scenes of the morning show. I thought it was really cool. And I don't know, I thought I would work like at a local news station or something. And I ended up moving back to Phoenix and I got a job at Food for the Hungry, which was an, a nonprofit. And that, that kind of goes back to like a, that world felt very safe for me because I grew up in that. And so I knew a lot of people in that in the Christian nonprofit world and I loved it. They're all really good people and they were doing really good things. And so there was part of me that just felt like that's what I'm meant to be is in this space. And I ended up doing fundraising, like I mentioned. And I think I raised my first year like $5 million right out of college. And I was having so much fun. Like, I had a spreadsheet with like different color codes of different things. And I was like competing against myself of like how much I I could do. That's a very type A move,
0: by the way.
1: It was really fun. (laughs) Yeah, you have to like make it a game or something. And so I started doing that. And then After three years, I was making $30,000 a year and it was like, okay, I'm like tapped out. Like I have no more motivation to keep doing what
0: I'm doing. I have to ask you a philosophical question, right? Because you said you raised 5 million bucks in your first year.
1: Yeah. It was something like that. I might not be totally right, but it was a lot like that.
0: The point is though, is that you probably did about the same, if not better in your second and third year. Fair to assume. So let's call it round down. Let's say you raised 10 million bucks or 15 million bucks and you're taking home 30 grand a year. I get it. It's a nonprofit. Was there any raging capitalist in you that was like, okay, like I get it. It's for a good cause, but like, come on, like I'm working my butt off over here to,
1: A little bit, but not as much as you might have think. I was wanting like to make 50 grand. It wasn't like I thought I was like adding all this value and doing all these kind of things. I wanted to be able to buy the jeans that I wanted to buy or something like that. It wasn't like I was trying to hit all these things. And then my dad had suggested commercial real estate. Meanwhile, I was living at home. So you will freaking love this, Erin. So my dad told me when I graduated college, if I saved 50% of my income. He'd let me live at home rent free for the first couple of years. The rule was I had to save 50% of my income. I wasn't making a 10, but so I did. And I did that for three years. And so I was able to like save a decent amount of money, right? For a new college grad. But that was like the rule.
0: Love your dad. Don't even know his name. Blah, blah, blah.
1: <laughs> so yeah, so I'm doing that. I'm like kind of saving some money. And he's like, okay, you've saved this money. Now what are you going to do with it? He's like, I think you should really look at commercial real estate because fundraising is sales. You're doing sales. And I was always like, oh, I don't know. That's, all, that's kind of like used car salesman type of stuff. It sounds like you were trying to
0: fall back into your trick of like keeping with what's comfortable, not to call you out or anything. Oh, yeah.
1: totally. Totally. And then he was working with... So there's a guy named Scott Kaplan. He's since passed away, but he was with CBRE here in Phoenix. And my dad was his first client. He went really... Bar in CD. And my dad was actually his first client. And so Scott would actually come to my parents' house and like sign leases and do all sorts of stuff with them. And I kind of got to know him and I saw them talking about deals. And so I thought it was interesting. And this was about 2003. I graduated college in 2000. So about 2003. And I started applying to the Phoenix office. But at that time, the market was. Really competitive. And I'm coming from the nonprofit world, which isn't exactly... I'm not at the top of a list, right? Of like candidates. So I applied to San Diego and Chicago.
0: You say applied. You're talking about for CBRE? Yes. Got it. So you just figured because Scott Kaplan is a good guy and does well and is at CBRE, that you needed to work at CBRE.
1: They had me sold on CBRE as for the place to start in your career. They were like, this is the best place for you to learn and train and da-da-da-da. And so I applied to Phoenix and I wasn't getting very far of Phoenix initially and then San Diego, Chicago. And I would just call, I think I had it in my calendar. Like every Tuesday, I was just calling those three offices. And I did that for 11 months wow. and didn't get anywhere. I was just calling the managing directors, all that. And I finally reached Mark Reed in San Diego and he was just like, I'm really impressed with your persistence. Next time you're in town come by for an interview. Well, I was going there. I was running a half marathon. I was like, Oh, I'm going to be there. You know, So I ended up doing an interview. You know the drill. You have to go through like all these interviews. And then finally, I don't know how long that was, but finally he said, Okay, if you take this personality test or they don't call it that, but that's what it was. Mm-hmm. If you don't get a one, it was a scale of like one to four. We'll hire you. Four is like the... Navy fighter pilots that are like, hire this guy before Cushman Wakefield does. And then one is like, under no circumstances will we ever hire this person? Because I think it's like, you're lying or trying to cheat the test in some way. So he's like, as long as you're not a one. And I'm like, I'm going to be a four. (laughs) And I came back as a two. It was like, hire with caution. I'm like, you said, if I'm not a one. And he said, Okay. I'm hiring you because you're a college athlete and athletes always traditionally do really well. Wow. Okay. So like that all kind of gets moved in. So I moved to San Diego. I didn't know a single person. I didn't really know the market. I just knew like the places where we would vacation as kids. And that was 18 years
0: ago. Wow. Yeah. And this was to do brokerage.
1: Yeah, so I got hired and they had a wheel program at the time where you could rotate different specialties. And in my head, I was like, oh no, medical office is where I'm supposed to be. And they said, okay, great, we'll get you to medical office. But we had this new team come over from Grubbin Ellis at the time and they're in retail and they need help like <laughs> moving their manila folders from their old office to the new office and like putting labels on file cabinets and stuff. So I got. Put on the retail team. And then I ended up never rotating out because I loved working in retail so much. I just intuitively knew retail and I loved all the brands that I never rotated out. So, were
0: you doing tenant rep work, leasing, a little bit about San Diego only?
1: San Diego only. My first couple of years, you know, I was just like a runner doing all sorts of random things. And then I started out doing tenant rep. I think my first deal was either a dry cleaning deal or for Fantastic Sam's. One of, them, one of those two. You know, very sexy. All
0: right. So let me ask you this, because this is a great time for one of my forky superlative questions. Any embarrassing stories from when you first got started?
1: Oh, plenty. There's, there was a shopping center that I was cold calling on for my senior broker. The road that it's on is Mission Gorge Road. And... I made a spreadsheet for myself of all the cold calls that I was making, and I had it color coded. Of like, I was trying to create a hit list of how many people actually answered, how many people wanted information, all that kind of stuff. And you, you know, we are in the cubes with all these people at the bullpen. I did over 300 cold calls, but I was calling it Mission George the whole time instead of Mission Gorge. And so I'm like calling. Three hundred people saying, "Yeah, I'm leasing this project." I'm not even calling it the right name. So.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh man, I love that. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's up there. Not yeah, misidentifying the market three hundred times over is pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, and if you grew up there, if you lived in San Diego for five minutes, you know that that's not the name of the street. So got it.
0: Wow, that's uh, no bueno. Yeah. Right. But eventually, you figured out the name of the market. Eventually, you got you started doing some deals. So what, what happened next? You're at CB.
1: Yeah. So I worked with that team for 13 years. Oh, wow. And I met my husband there.
0: Oh, you got a lot of deals done.
1: Yes. <laughs> it was a good run. I met my father-in-law first. who was running property management in the, the market. And then Matt, his son, my future husband, was in research. And he ended up joining our team. And so there were like four producers. Matt and I were two of the four. And I was on that team for 13 years. The goal of the team was just market share, right? We would work on anything big or small. It was just about market share. And towards the end of those 13 years, I was just kind of getting bored. And I really wanted to work on like lifestyle projects, places where I want to shop and like those brands that I want to spend my time. And so I ended up spinning off from the team. I went backwards on income and this is interesting i tell people this story a lot too is i said to myself i'm only going to work on assets that are like 100 million or more i had zero listings that were 100 million or more but i was like that's my specialty oh, i'm only playing in that space and i get one listing i don't know if it was 100 but it was real close it's a super nice listing and then what happened was i started getting more listings but i wasn't having to pitch like as soon as I would say, yeah, I'm just working in this premier space, I feel like what keeps landlords up at night is their best assets, not their worst assets that they could be doing better. It's like, how can they squeeze oh. more out of their money makers?
0: I ought to try that mindset. Maybe I'll sleep better at night.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it depends on who you are as a landlord. You're not in the lifestyle.
0: No, nope. nope, we're not. But
1: you're doing just fine.
0: We do a one Lululemon building conveniently located in wonderful part of Cincinnati. For those of you who are ever shopping in Cincinnati, you should go shop there in Hyde Park. But no, in general, we are secondary and tertiary market people.
1: Yeah, it's just a different game
0: plan. I have to say, the niche thing totally reminds me of an earlier part of your story. It makes me think of your dad. Your dad didn't want to be a general doctor. He didn't want to be just an orthopedic surgeon. He wanted to be the hand surgeon. And so that probably was a big reason why his primary practice, because look, if you practice primary for a long enough time, he obviously was doing well because typically hospital systems were just coming in and gobbling everybody up in that heyday. And so your dad obviously had the foresight to be a specialist niche. You weren't a broker, you weren't a retail broker, you were a landlord leasing retail broker of call it sexy lifestyle shopping center. And I think people appreciate that niche. And you were doing it only in San Diego, or did you branch out a little bit to
1: not until later. But I started just in San Diego. And then...
0: Oh, there you go.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. But what was interesting is it wasn't so much like a strategy play. of I'm going to go make all this more money at this higher level. It was like, I was just bored. I was tired and I didn't really know where I wanted to go. I just knew I don't want to just keep doing all of these deals that I don't care about all the time. I just was like losing momentum on my interest in the business. And so... I just knew that this is where I like to shop and this is where I like to spend my time. And so I want to invest on working in places where I want to spend my time. And like when I have time off and I'm going to take my kids somewhere, Like I just want it all to kind of blend together, right? Mm -hmm. And I really didn't know if I was going to be making more money in that space. I didn't.
0: So you say that you branched out. I mean, does this mean that just for clarity, so I understand as well as the listeners, did you leave CBRE to pursue this... Lifestyle center.
1: No, I was still at CB, but I just wasn't on the same team. But my husband stayed there.
0: I was about to say, you know, you talk about bonding together. I mean, my goodness, you met your husband there, which by the way, you're not the first limitless guest that I've talked to who met their spouse at work. Libby Lasseter did as well. Fun fact. It happens. Who runs bear properties? No, it absolutely does. So thought I'd throw that fun fact out there for you. Yeah, Libby's episode was amazing and you would appreciate that. Speaking of another person yeah well, their product type. I'm sure you have little hearts in your eyes every time you see a bear property because they they certainly do it right, so
1: yeah, we've talked to her too about leveraging their social and stuff because they have like they have some really cool opportunities.
0: They do, yeah, we're doing deals on something that people haven't even gotten to hear about on the back end which we're going to get to so anyway, you're pretty far into your tenure at this point at CB you come to this realization that you want to chase what you're passionate about, which is these lifestyle shopping centers, and because For whatever reason, you probably were like, Oh yeah, I just chased what I wanted to do and it worked. I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. But I think as a landlord who does hire brokers, I'm thinking to myself, Well, yeah, you obviously carved out that niche. So you started leasing lifestyle centers. I assume it goes well, but please continue your story.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. My manager said something to me that I'll never forget. And I tell a lot of young people this about this moment. It was a Saturday and I was in the office and... We're on the 16th floor of this high-rise in in La Jolla. And my manager's in his office. And so I go over and go sit in his office. He's like, how's it going? How's it going with your business plan, right? And I go, you're never going to believe that I'm actually getting business without having to pitch or compete because I've just carved out this exclusive niche. And he was a former Navy fighter pilot back in the day. He says to me, you know, Carrie, we had a saying back in the Navy that once you get above 30,000 feet, there's a whole lot less people flying around up there. And it's not so much like the brand or the elevating the product type, it's about elevating your business and like leveling up what you're passionate about. And that's how you get above 30,000 feet. It's not so much whether you're working on Lululemon or Big O tires, it's just elevating your game. Love that. Yeah.
0: I could see why that really resonated. It's like resonated with me and I wasn't there.
1: Yeah, it's important.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm really glad that you shared that with everybody. So your manager gives you that riveting advice. Yes. You're leasing lifestyle centers. All hunky dory.
1: Yeah, all is going great. I'm doing really well. I start leasing this new development in Del Mar. It's amazing. It's like my baby to this day. I still like go there and feel like it's like my fingerprints are on it. I love this asset. It's called One Paseo Del Mar. It's a mixed use project. And I get that project to about 82% least. My portfolio is worth about $2 billion at this point, just the assets that I'm working on. And I go to attend ICSC and I was receiving an award, a national award from the company for creativity and character and all these really amazing things. And so I'm like at the top of my game. And it's just incredible. The project is going to be delivered. This is the last ICSC before One Paseo is going to be delivered. And the night of the award, I am attending a white tablecloth dinner with an executive from the company and a handful of people. And I ended up getting drugged and raped that night by the executive. And it's interesting. It's, like, it's really complicated about what happens. But basically, there's all sorts of different kinds of date rape drugs. And some drugs take 72 hours to wear off because that's how long you have to like get a rape kit done. That's what I had. So I went to the conference the next day and was under the influence and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, I ended up walking away from my business and dealing with all of this, what happened. And through the process, I learned about arbitration clauses in employment contracts. And the whole thing is just wild and gnarly. I was 39 at the time. I had married, I had three kids. Like I thought that that would never happen to me. I was past the point of like that being even on my radar at all. I mean, it, it happens, it's happening. I've had a ton of people reach out to me, but it's something that you don't really learn about until you go through it. And I went through this horrific experience of like the assault. But then, what happens when it happens in the workplace? And I mean, I learned a lot through it. I'm sorry. I know I always feel so bad telling this part of the story because it's like.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Because so, so I was looking for words to say, but like, I will not accept your apology. It's not good. <laughs> you needed to tell that part of the story because let, let me rephrase you didn't need to share anything that you didn't feel comfortable sharing. You do feel comfortable sharing it, and you should never apologize for doing so. And I was aware of that situation. Obviously, I had the opportunity to hear you tell this story before. And I knew it would come up today when we were talking. And it still hits me the same way as it did the first time I heard it. And so for you to have the courage to have told it to me twice and tells me that you've probably told it, unfortunately, countless times... Unfortunately, in the sense that you've had to feel probably what you're feeling right now, countless times. But fortunately, that you have the courage and the character and the foresight to know what you're doing for society by telling that story. I don't ever want you to apologize. So what? who cares if a guy like me or a guy, gal, whoever feels uncomfortable hearing it, it needs to be heard. And not everybody would have the strength to say it, and you do. So apology... Unaccepted. <laughs> and a thank you is in order to you on behalf of whether one person listens to this or a million. If anybody can be impacted in a positive way to either see something, say something, or somebody thinking nasty thoughts in their mind that would maybe influence them to want to do something that's horrific like that, and this maybe gets them over the edge from stopping or, or just spreading the word around to make it. Shunned upon even more than it already is, and it can never be shunned upon enough. Kudos to you, Carrie. Thank you. Kudos.
1: I so appreciate it, and like I have told, said it a lot. And I actually went through media training, and I told my story a lot. And what happened was there ends up being a bill introduced, right? And when and this was all around the time of Chanel Miller when she was coming out about the the Duke Cross team and stuff like that, and she was not well received. At the time, and I was really freaked out that this was my business was going to... Everything was going to backfire and I was really scared. So I hire a media trainer up in LA and I go back and forth up there about four times. And I'd go from like 5pm to like 2am in the morning, just in her little apartment in West Hollywood. And she would say, Tell me your story or what is arbitration or why does it matter? And I had to get my story really concise And there was one time I had actually forgotten about some of this. And then recently someone said, you can tell your story like you're ordering a sandwich. And I go, oh yeah, it's because I did therapy and all that kind of stuff. But it was really the media training where she was like my Mr. Miyagi, where she was like, tell it again, tell it again. Yep. And instead of like wax on, wax off, she'd say, tell it again. There was one time it was like one in the morning. And she goes, Carrie, I got to tell you, you sound angry. And I threw my papers at her and I go, I am angry. And she just stood there and I was like holding her glare, like, I dare you. And she goes, no one will hear you until you can tell it when you're not angry. Wow. And I just like sat down and she knew that I like recognized it. She goes, tell me again, tell me your story again. So I said it over and over and over again.
0: Wow. Yeah. As I said before, your apology for telling the story and it having moving me to borderline tears. I'm not going to apologize to the audience for making sure that this part of your story comes out because I think it's that important. I say all that. You got thrown one of the biggest, if not the ultimate curveballs in your career, certainly of any guest that I've had on this show. I have to ask, what happens? Is that ultimately what terminated your? career at CB?
1: Yeah. And what happened... It's really interesting because when I first went public with the story, it was on LinkedIn after everything went down. And
0: What year is this? Can you just put this into perspective?
1: Yeah. So it was ICSD of 2018. So it was May of 2018. So we're like 3 years ago.
0: Got it. And you were still at CBR. You were a CBRE employee, receiving the recognition. It happens that night. And then...
1: Yeah. So... I report it. And what's interesting is because the drugs took a few days to wear off, I'm laying there going, do I report it? Like, what am I supposed to do? And I'm, in my head, I'm like, they are probably not going to find anything. And I just thought, if I don't do anything, it's going to happen again. He's going to do it again. And so if I don't at least go through the actions, I'm exposing at least one person. So I was thinking about that one woman that I felt like, okay, I've got to report it because of her. And then it's interesting because from May of 18 to May of 19, I went from thinking about this part does get me emotional. I went from thinking about that one woman to, I ended up learning that there's 60 million Americans that have this clause in their contract. And so the negotiating tactic went from we have to protect one to we have to go fight for those 60 million people who don't know that they have this in their contract. And I'm covering a lot of ground in that. But I think when we start with one person, it really does have major ramifications. Because when you look at any problem really big, it's hard to wrap your head around it. But when we think about one person and what it means to that one person, we can make a difference on whatever the issue is. But it was interesting because I have so many people, like you say, it's so courageous for you to tell your story. And it's the courage that comes with it. But I think it's really important to acknowledge that like telling my story right now, like this is amazing that you're having me on and I love talking to you and I love having these conversations, but this isn't courage, right? Where I felt like I had to be brave and every cell in my body had to fight for courage was when no one could see me and I was like fighting for my life and I felt like I was being buried alive. And in those moments, that's where you have to muster courage. This is... I'm not scared to tell to
0: you. <laughs> I'm sure you're not. Yeah. I'm sure you, you faced a lot more daunting than, than me. I can assure you that. Okay. So you're in Vegas. This happens. I assume you take a leave of absence or don't even know what to ask. What do you do? <laughs> well,
1: first of all, there's so much that happens in a short amount of time. And like, it's this weird, like, twilight zone because you feel like everybody else's life is moving on, but you're sitting in this, like, stuck.
0: I apologize if I'm asking you a question that's insensitive.
1: No, 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 you can ask me anything.
0: Did you go to the show the next day? Like,
1: I did. Do
0: you remember it?
1: I do. And, and I met with people, but I was a little off.
0: Okay, so you're not, like, falling over yourself, blacking out? Like, there's nothing, like... No. Okay. And,
1: like, that's part of how it works. Like, later when I was talking to the detective, I was so freaked out that people wouldn't believe me because I saw people the next day at the show and his comment was, no, that's what they do. It works that way. He said, we had a woman who this happened to her. She took the bar exam the next day and passed. What? And they they were using it as evidence against her that this didn't happen. So it's like, it's really weird. And the only way I can describe it to you is, it's like the wires in your brain just don't totally connect because like I could remember things that happened the night before, but my brain wasn't the alarm bells weren't going off. Mm. It was like, okay, these like horrific, awful things happened, but I'm sitting there in a meeting talking about which space a tenant should go.
0: Boy, talk about what we think what we do is a big deal. I mean, you know, it is in the moment, but like...
1: I was in a meeting with a large cosmetics company, got up from the table, went to the bathroom, threw up. He came back down and sat down at the table. The deal got done, by the way.
0: Wow. <laughs> the warrior. Forget athlete. You're for your past athlete. You're a warrior.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, that's just how messed up the drugs are. It's like you can be sitting there. And like a lot of people who I've talked to since then, obviously, that I had seen at the show, they said, you know, I'm mad at myself because I saw you and I thought there was something slightly odd, but I didn't know. And then they feel all this guilt that... It's just, you're just slightly off. You're not enough to where they might have, maybe they thought I was like hungover or
0: something. And to those people who are listening to this that know Carrie, Carrie's going to put it out there because she's awesome at that. You know, they're going to listen to this show and they're going to say, oh, that's me. And what I say to them as somebody who's third party and not there, was not there in the moment, did not know you at that time, like, especially if you're only friendly but not super close friends, like, you're not going to ask someone that you want to have a good professional relationship with. I mean, could you imagine if you're a tenant rep broker and you're trying to represent tenants to go into these high-profile shopping centers and are listing and you're not going to walk up to a leasing agent and say, you look a little off today. like, you sure you're okay? Like, did you go out too hard last night? Like, you're not going to say that.
1: And I don't think it was even that bad. I think it was... They might not have even thought about it until after they heard about what happened. Like, there was one woman who I had like a 30 minute break between meetings. So I was just sitting at a table at the booth and she's a really good friend of mine. I've known her. I knew her my whole career. She came and sat down at the table with me and started talking to me. In that moment, I was looking at her going, I think I know this woman. I can't remember who she is. Oh wow! As she's talking to me, I didn't want to make her feel bad that I couldn't remember her. So I had a conversation with her, but I couldn't remember who she was. And so... Later, when she found out what happened, she said, you know, it did seem odd, but I didn't really think about it. So it was like that kind of stuff that was happening. Sure.
0: Hmm. You go through the show somehow, miraculously. You go home, you've now had a chance to absorb what happened. You've obviously reported it to the police, etc. In May of 18, like, what happens next? Like-
1: so I called my sister. She's a Marine and an attorney. So she's really, really tough.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you can say that.
1: (laughs) She's in DC and asked her what I should do. So she makes me appointments with all these attorneys and she finds me Gloria Allred. So I go and I meet with Gloria Allred's partner in LA. And I'm like, okay, this is... And I'm not like hopeful. Your life is just in shambles. I'm like, right now I'm going to be like one of those, those people standing next to Gloria Allred in a press conference or something. I go meet with her partner. They tell me... They say, your case is worth nothing. I hear you're worth nothing. It's like, you have no case. There's nothing. And I met with a couple of attorneys and they all were like, no, you have no case. And I'm like, but he ran the country of Canada for C B R E. Like, how can this just be, be nothing? And so there's people that I would just tell that part to because it would have been really easy to just be super discouraged and like, there's nothing. I wasn't so much about me getting money. It was like, this just can't happen again. I didn't fully understand what I was trying to do or anything. I just felt like this just can't happen to people. It's so wrong. And my sister ended up... She was really the mastermind behind my case and my strategy. And what happened was... So he went on disability after I reported it. And so he was Teflon where... Can't fire him because he's on disability. And... My sister said, she was like, just write it out. This was really interesting. This was a really pivotal part of my case. I'll never forget. It was like five in the morning. She's on the East Coast. She calls me and I'm like, it's dark in my kitchen. I'm the only one up. And she goes, I was waiting for an appropriate time to call you. I couldn't wait. I woke up this morning thinking about you. She's like, can you guys afford to live the next year or two with Matt's salary and the way you are? Can you afford to live without getting a settlement? And I was like, yeah, we're we're okay. We can do that. She goes, okay, you cannot make your case about money. You will lose if you make your case about money. I was like, okay, well, what's it about? And she goes, I don't know. We'll know it when we see it. But if you make it about money, you will lose because you are up against a billion dollar company and you will lose every time, no matter if you get millions of dollars, you will lose. So she's like, we're just gonna hold the line. We're not gonna push forward. We're not gonna back off. We're just gonna hold our position until we figure out what your case is about. Most assault and rape cases in the workplace settle within 30 days because the victim needs to get back to work and they've got to like move on with their life. My case took a year to settle. So this happened in May. We're just like treading water, holding the line. In November of 18, Google has an international worldwide walkout where 20,000 employees walk off the job around the world. And it was regarding arbitration for sexual harassment cases. Now, rape falls under the sexual harassment umbrella because there was an executive at Google that got a $90 million severance pay after there was a claim, but no one knows what it is because there's confidentiality in all of these things. And so the New York Times writes this huge article on it. Google changes policy. They've removed sexual assault and rape from their employment contracts, the very next day, Facebook, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, and a couple others all change policy. And my sister calls me. She's like, "This is it. This is it. You have the case that will set precedent." And I was like, "No, I'm pretty sure I'm not this like twenty thousand Google thing." She goes, "Here's the deal." You cannot take money and you have to get your voice back. You have to be able to tell your story because what happens when you sign an arbitration clause in your employment contract is you've waived your right to sue your employer and you are bound by confidentiality. And so I'm not advocating that people have the ability... I don't want people to go sue their employers all the time. I want companies to work with people to where we can legally... There's discoverability in these cases, right? So like the person who hurt me My case is not discoverable. The only way it's discoverable if you see articles about me because I chose publicly to to speak about it. We're not hearing about the issue of arbitration when it comes to sexual assault and rape because everyone's bound by confidentiality. So, because I was making the money that I was making on One Paseo and I was doing that in my career, I was still getting like the second half of my commission checks from that development. So, I could afford to fight. So, I felt this huge a tremendous amount of obligation that I had the ability to fight. I could afford to do it. And I had a case that could set precedent when all these tech companies are making changes. There's a 20,000, you know what I mean? It was like this perfect storm of everything that happened. So I ended up not taking money for confidentiality. I negotiated the right to be able to tell my story and be able to talk about it. And so we settled in May of 19 and I started lobbying members of Congress that summer. And so I didn't go out and start talking about it. I just went and met with different members. And then in October of 2020, they introduced Carrie's Law, which is removing sexual assault and rape from employment contracts. And when the law was introduced or the bill was introduced, that's when I posted on LinkedIn about my story and what happened. So that was the first time that I went public
0: with it. Wow. Unbelievable. You had unbelievable uh, persistence and perseverance and just an incredible part of the story.
1: But it goes back to that moment that you were asking about, like with ASU, where that decision to not go because I, I didn't want to risk failing or I was scared. In the moments where it was like, can you forego something to try and pursue something greater. Like I didn't know if I was going to be like Chanel Miller or these people that weren't as well received when they came out with their stories. And me too had happened and me too didn't have the best. It wasn't as well received as maybe it started out as, you know, it had kind of flipped by this point when all of this stuff was happening. And so I was really scared to go out and do it. But then in the back of my mind, it was like, but if I don't, now the stakes are even higher than like where you played volleyball in college. Right.
0: right. Yeah, no kidding. But because you had that experience beforehand, you were prepared, as prepared as you could have been, I guess. And that's a, that's a bold statement for me to make unintentionally for the, this life moment that you had that you obviously executed on flawlessly. And I'm proud to not only get to hear it, but to hear it from you firsthand and share that with everybody who listens to the show. And there is some good parts here that come up, like
1: oh, now it's amazing. This is the good part. Like I never would have thought I'd be on your podcast. Like it's crazy that I'm sitting here.
0: But it exists. It's amazing to have you. So you do start working again, and your life, you know, isn't exclusively about getting through that dark time. What happens professionally?
1: You know, it's so interesting. Like we had talked about earlier that create the life you want. I always heard people saying that, but it was like, like how? Like how do you? do that. And I'm not, I don't have the formula or answer, but I think the secret is being open to letting the good and the bad come together and being willing to put yourself out there and make the mistakes and fail a bit. So I started carrying Bob & Co. and I didn't see it being anything more than just myself and myself maybe consulting for a couple of clients or something. I wasn't exactly gung-ho about getting back into the business. And I didn't think that it was going to be anything more than maybe me consulting for a client or two. And then Emily Jones, who is a friend of mine in the industry, who and I have grown up together. I was We never worked together. She was in-house at Shea Properties. And she was never my client. I was never her broker. But we kind of ran parallel paths. She has 3 kids. I have 3 kids. We were pregnant at the same time. Life just kind of was running parallel paths. And she was ready for a change. And when she came over and joined Carrie, Bob and Co., that was just kind of like the shot in the arm or the confidence that I needed. Like, okay, we've got something really cool here. And what was a game changer for us was she was thinking about coming over. We were having cocktails and we're kind of talking about it. We just met for happy hour. And when I left, I didn't tell any of my clients. Like, I just went off the grid completely. I didn't talk to anybody. And while we're sitting at happy hour, Steve Roman calls me, who was at Restoration Hardware at the time. And I hadn't talked to Steve in like a year. And Emily is sitting across from me and I'm like, oh my gosh, can I take this call? She's like, yeah, for sure. I answer and he's like, how are you? I'm like, what happened? Oh my gosh, I haven't talked to you in a long time. And I go, oh, I'll, I'll tell you the whole story one day and speak with Emily. And he's like, well, what are you doing? And so I'm looking at Emily and I say to Steve, Can I practice my pitch on you for my brokerage business? Like, I just want to see if this is if I've got something or if this might not be received very well to the like men in our industry. Because at this point, the bill hadn't been introduced. I hadn't been talking about it. I knew I wanted to put emphasis on the female consumer, but I also didn't want to come across as like anti men, right? So I was like trying to find that balance. So he's like, yeah, sure. And so I go, okay, well, women make 85% of all consumer purchases in the US. And I'm building a female brokerage team, and no one's going to understand the female consumer better than us. And he goes, okay, I need to talk to you about Palm Springs. We need a site. And so he starts like talking to me about like their requirements. And he's like, when you have time, call me back. I want to talk to you about it. And Emily was like, I'm in. Like, I'm all about it. So that was really, really cool. So those two things of her coming over, I never did a deal with Steve at Paul Springs or anything like that. But just his response was like, okay, we've got something really cool. And that's really who I am. Like, so that was kind of like creating the life that you want to have is starting to like come together. And then it just starts kind of snowballing. And we were trying to figure out how to come back into the market without taking listings that I had once had. Now it's like, You don't want to come in and just start trying to call all these competitors and pulling stuff. Like that's not the right way to come back. And in the time that I had off, I was studying social media. Like, if retailers are driving revenue through social, how can brick and mortar retail landlords drive revenue through social? And the answer that I came to is if you have leasing people behind the handle, like driving your handle, it's just like creating sales of product for a retailer. So I'm like noodling on this philosophy. And then a client had called of someone that I hadn't worked with before. And they were like, we'd like to have you on this asset. We're not quite sure how you, how we can work it with this other brokerage team. We like our brokers on the asset. We like the brokers on the asset. We're friends with them. And so I just said, I go, well, I've got this idea. I had no pitch book or anything. And I just said, would you consider hiring us as your social media company? Like, could we take a crack at your handle? And, Let's do it for like three months. And if it doesn't work, we'll high five and it's no big deal. And they were like, yeah, let's give it a shot. And that was almost two years ago. So we've been running their handle. Hello, Jenny was born out of that, which is a social media company for retail landlords. And yeah, so it just kind of, we just leaned into it. We took a little bit of risk, but
0: yeah. Is that basically the spine of Carrie Bob and Co at this point is running social media handles for properties that can justify having their own social media accounts?
1: That's what we were doing. But then I met Jay in March of last year, and I was kind of telling him about it. And Jay goes, the very first conversation I ever had with Jay, he goes, you're freaking amazing. I was trying to figure out how commercial real estate adjusts in the digital era. And this is one way how, for for sure. And he goes, but I see a couple of problems. One, brokers are going to see you as competition if you're under a brokerage umbrella. And two, I don't see how you're going to scale it. And I was like, that's 100%. Those are my problems. I'm trying to crack this nut. Our second conversation, Jay said, you need to start a new company. I want to partner with you. Let's build a, so- a true social media company. So we moved all of our social handles. There wasn't a ton, but we moved our social handles over to Hello Jenny, which we started with Jay. That's our social media company. And then Carrie Bob & Co. is what I started doing when I was at CB and wanted to do the premier mixed-use lifestyle. And so our model is not necessarily market share, but we work on really large mixed use projects and we are placemakers, but use retail brands to do it. So we'll we'll lease your retail project, but we use the brands to like evoke emotion and create a sense of place.
0: Cool. Amazing. A little different than what we do around here, which I love the perspective and I love the thought process and intuition. I would encourage uh, any... Landlord with that product type that uh, certainly based on my experience with Carrie. And obviously, if you haven't picked up that she's a hell of a human being by this point, and not really sure what you're doing listening to the show. But anyway, the point is, is I definitely have created a really cool niche that has the ability to scale. It sounds like, and it sounds like you guys, that sounds like I know you guys are up to some incredible things. So I'm really excited to see where it goes.
1: I would add just one last thing in closing is to anyone listening that's building their brokerage business or building their real estate business, is to stay really focused, I think is really important. Because Aaron, I listen to you on Clubhouse and all of our... Like on the Zooms and what you're doing. And I am envious of what you're doing at times. I'm like, oh, that's so cool how you're you're running your business and how you're going about it and how you've got the commercial real estate and the urgent care. And the way you're doing it is so cool. But we've got to stay... Focus on what we know and what we're good at to be good. I think that for me was a big lesson. And I was a book recommendation that I think you might like is the billion dollar loser. Have you read that?
0: We're doing this on Zoom in case you don't know for the people <laughs> listening. And I know you're only listening. So I'm just laughing because I'm going through my list and my notes. And I'm about to go. Okay, I got to get to my questions at the end. Okay, I got to figure out a way to ask Carrie, what's the best advice for someone getting into the business less than five years in? And she's going on this spiel about how it's important to stay focused. And then the next one on my list is, what's one book that changed your life? So
1: <laughs> perfect. We're tracking so I'm not We're giggling tracking. at you. I'm just laughing
0: that you have ESP and read my notes. So go ahead.
1: Well, the book recommendation is part of the advice to stay focused. So I listened to it on audio, The Billion Dollar Loser. Which is the story of the founder WeWork, and there was like a light bulb moment. I was driving to Arizona from San Diego, and I got through the first half. And on the way to Arizona, I was like, "Oh my gosh, hello Jenny, we have to stay focused on retail property handles because we had brands reaching out to us asking if we could help retailers." And we're like, "That sounds great, right? Like more handles, more money." So in Billion Dollar Loser, the author compares Adam of WeWork to Steve Jobs. Like contrast, not compare. Like he contrasts them. And part of the problem that the author concludes with WeWork was they tried to do WeWork, we live, we grow, all these different avenues of WeWork. And then at the end of that, he says, now Steve Jobs, is he, when he was growing Apple, he would say to his executive team, bring me the top 10 things we need to focus on as a company over the next 12 months. And so the team would all work together and they collectively come up with the top 10. And he would cross everything off the list except the top three. And he was like, we're only going to focus on these three things for the next 12 months. And that was like the success is he kept it really simple and really narrow. And as soon as I got to Phoenix, I called Jay, I was like, we can't do brands. We can't do retailers. We have to do retail property handles. That's what Hello Jenny does really, really well. Maybe we could grow into that in the future and we can leave it open. But we have got to be known as an expert in this one thing. And I think as people are growing and building their commercial estate just they see different people doing great things. And like people are seeing you doing it and they're like, oh, I want to do that. That's amazing. No one can do what you're doing the way you're doing it. And I think people finding their thing is the secret and just like leaning in and going into it. Love that.
0: Excellent advice. I have to ask, this is not in my notes. Where does Hello Jenny come from? Where does that name come from? What is that? I'd love to know.
1: There is no Jenny on our team. Jenny is the consumer. Because we debated about keeping this a secret, but I'm not very good at it. Before Hello Jenny existed, Jay and I were talking about the disconnect between retail property owners and retailers. And we were like, retailers understand their consumers really well. And I pulled up on Zoom, because this is all during the pandemic, our avatars that we use at Carrie Bob and Co to understand merchandising for a retail asset. Jay flips the Zoom and he pulls up his avatars. He's in New York. So he has these two houses and there's Jenny and Mike and they're both watching the Yankees game. And then when the commercials come on, Jenny sees a different ad than Mike based on her spending. And so for the next two weeks, we kept talking about Jenny. I was like, the landlords need Jenny because she's the one spending the money at their assets. And like, we need to connect the landlords to Jenny. We need to shorten that gap. And it was like, what does Jenny want? What does Jenny want out of a social media handle from a from a retail property? Why is Jenny gonna follow a shopping center? Why is Jenny gonna spend her money at that shopping center? And so as we've been building, we kept thinking about that woman and going, why is she? what we're doing on social, what does it mean to her? And that's really the biggest conduit for landlords that they need. You need leasing people, connecting that. And then once you can speak to the consumer, you can speak to your existing tenants and help promote their sales and all of that. It's kind of like baking a cake. You hit the consumer, your existing tenants, and then you can lease off of that. But you can't speak to prospective tenants until you can speak to your
0: consumer. That makes all the sense in the world to me. I thought there was going to be like some inside joke or something. <laughs> you see my expectations. That was awesome.
1: Um, yeah, that's kind of how I came up with that.
0: This question is usually very challenging. But I ask it to everybody and I think I'm putting pressure on you now, but I think it's pretty obvious where this one goes. But I'm going to ask you because I ask everybody else. At some point, you're going to be done with, with our business. You're going to retire, move on, enjoy the, all that San Diego has to offer. And ICSE and the other trade publications are going to write an article about, yep, the legendary Carrie Bob decided to hang it up today. She's done. This is not for a long time, by the way. You're not going anywhere for a while. You can't leave me yet. And they're going to talk about how great you are and how many deals you did. But they're also, especially with you, they're going to talk about their, your legacy. What do you want that to say? What do you want your legacy to be like in this business?
1: I care more about the people that where the impact was and where it impacted other people's business or other people's lives. And what I really hope with what we're doing with the policy is that there are people who are never hurt. But they'll never know that they weren't hurt because the policy was changed, because there was transparency. And so a predator didn't work at their company. And you'll never hear about it and we'll never know. That is where I hope the biggest impact is, is that... We changed culture, really, in companies, not just in commercial real estate, but just in our country. I just hope we change culture in our country. You know,
0: <laughs> you know I get asked that question. I don't know. I want to do a bunch of deals. Have fun. Here said, like, I'm here to change the world. And she actually means it. And that's why I am so humbled to have you on this show. And I know anybody who's listening to this is appreciative, especially the women out there, for adding the value and the insight and the perspective and sharing your story. And on behalf of anybody who ever listens to this, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's amazing. really enjoyed having you on here. Thank you Thanks for listening to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. I hope you were able to extract one piece of value out of today's episode. That's my only goal. If you did in fact get some value out of it, Let me know via LinkedIn, Instagram, or through a review wherever you get your podcasts.